Hiya, pal. Got an idea. All right, mate, go on. I think we need to evolve the podcast. All right, what you got in mind? Well, why don't we just start recording all the chats we have when we're talking about leadership? Okay, what are we going to call it? Sense makers. Sense makers. Love it. And have we got a backer? Of course we have. Tsunami Sport. Quality. When are we starting? Now, get this end round and I'll put kettle on. Top man, I'll be round in five. Street created the Positive Schools Initiative in 2007, which advocates for educational reform to better support equity, motivation and well-being in young people. At the core of the Positive Schools Initiative are the Positive Schools Conferences, which have become known as Australia's leading mental health and well-being events for educators. As an academic social psychologist, Helen has carried out research exploring motivation and social cognitive causes of depression, Her theory of conditional goal setting explains how misunderstandings of motivation can lead to a lifelong vulnerability to depression and anxiety. Now, in 2017, Helen published her model of contextual well-being, and she stresses the need for educators and policymakers to pay more attention to school context in the consideration of social emotional learning. Helen has worked with schools and colleges around the world and continues to edit The Positive Times as a free online resource for teachers. Now, Helen, welcome to the show and start us off by telling us more about The Positive Schools Initiative. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me, Alan and Lewis. Um, It's nice to meet you both. Um, So The Positive Schools Initiative has has now been in place since 2009 and um, it's um, something that I started with my partner, Neil Porter, as, as a means initially of trying to find a way to um, help educators um, gain a better understanding of mental health and how we might support mental health in schools with a real focus on thinking about um, what we can do well and, and how we can sort of improve um, well-being with a focus on thinking about cultural and contextual shifts. Um, So it sort of came about because um, at that time there seemed to be a sort of like a a growing interest in looking at mental health and well-being in schools and certainly a lot of educators you know as they are now are really concerned about mental health in schools but there was a sort of lack in my mind there was a lack of understanding about being able to identify potential issues um, um, and a lack of understanding about what to do to support well-being. So there's all these sort of different programs arising. I think at that time I counted about 130 in Australia alone, but they weren't necessarily based in research or evidence. Um, and they weren't necessarily, even those that had been researched weren't necessarily having an impact. And um, schools were a bit lost at at which ones to take on or if they should take on any at all and and what to do. So we wanted to, we set up a conference in in 2009, the first Positive Schools Conference as a means of um, getting people who worked clinically and in academia and looking at mental health in schools and education to sort of offer their understanding of what might be a better way forward. And And we told everyone they weren't allowed to have any bar charts and they weren't allowed to sort of talk about our values. And um, so we didn't want to make it a sort of really sort of dull, heavy sort of whole day or two days of hearing about how terrible things were, but rather we wanted to make it practical and concrete and solution focused and, and a means of sort of an engaging way of closing that gap between, um, between schools and, and people working in mental health more professionally and it was a huge huge success and um it's such a huge success that we then went on to to sort of expand around australia and and then we since then uh we've also had events in hong kong and singapore and um and and we have and i've sort of continued my own work under that umbrella as well and so i suppose it's sort of chairing the conferences i i guide a lot of, of the themes of the event and have final say about speakers and things and so that we have a whole array of different people talking and supporting positive schools but 
very much I feel that we all have the same values and overall the same aims in general. It's, it's a, thank you for that introduction. And I'm, I mean, you talked about these 150 different programs that are going on. And I'd just like, just to put something in context, what's the difference then between what you're talking about and then positive education? So positive schools, positive education. Is it not the same? And what, what's the difference? <laughs> no, it is not the same. It's not. Well, the word positive is the same, isn't it? So <laughs> there's, there's an overlap. I mean, there is, there is a big overlap. So positive education is, um, I guess it's a movement really that, that began um, following a visit by um, Martin Seligman to Geelong Grammar School, where he worked with others and with the staff at Geelong Grammar School to look at a, developing um, an in-school program based on the, the sort of the emerging science of positive psychology. And it, it sort of, um, and from that, he sort of came the idea of positive education as being a whole school way to support wellbeing in schools. And it's, it's become very popular around the world and continues to, to evolve and grow. Um, positive schools takes a quite different approach in that we are much more about thinking, rather than thinking about how can we make individual students happier or, or how can we develop even just well-being um, in, in individuals, we think much more from a social perspective. So I suppose just sort of taking a step back and thinking about those sort of key differences and similarities. So positive education, I believe, um, focuses mainly on looking at individuals and their individual well-being. And by doing that, it assumes that each individual is, is pretty much responsible for their own well-being. And if as individuals we have enough skills and we had enough knowledge and we had enough practice and guidance that we could be well. And therefore, a lack of well-being is a, is a lack of understanding or, or operating in the best way for us in the world. Whereas I come from a more social psychology perspective. So in positive schools, it's more about the school rather than the individual or the educational process. And, and, and I firmly believe that absolutely we're in part responsible for our own well-being. But we're also in part responsible for the well-being of everybody within the context in which we find ourselves. And so within a school context, we're all supporting each other's well-being. And um, and sometimes, you know, if you have if if you're feeling really unhappy or you have really low level of well-being, that could actually be a healthy reflection of a really unhealthy context that you found yourself in that's just not supporting your needs. So immediately you can start to see that there's quite a different approach there. So rather than thinking, okay, what are the ingredients of happiness and how can we sort of teach these to young people? In positive schools, we're saying, okay, so what does the context need to do to meet the needs of the members of that context? And how can we ensure that they're doing that well? So mm -hmm. the focus then moves from rather thinking about, I don't know, a lesson on gratitude or, or talking about growth mindset to thinking more about um, equity, to thinking about autonomy, to thinking about um, cohesion, to thinking about people's um, need for a sense of competency and thinking about how the school can work as a whole to, to best support those needs in everybody. Um, there's also a, a other fundamental differences. I think that's probably the main one, but it's worth touching on the fact that um, I believe the positive education model, in, in uh, at least initially, was very much about flipping therapy on its head. So, it, uh, so instead of, um, you know, you might traditionally go and see a psychologist if you have something that is um, bothering you and you take yourself out of your context into a safe space to work through your problems and come to some sort of resolution and move forward. And uh, um, that's a sort of a clinical model that was taken into schools with positive education. And so there we have, instead of a therapy room, we have a classroom, kids were put in the classroom and there was a sort of an understanding of the guidance of teacher or person visiting the school. You would talk about, rather than working through your problems, you would talk through what you needed to be better than okay, to flourish and come to some sort of way of improving your life. And that's hugely problematic because well-being is not the opposite side of the coin to, 
struggling with a mental health issue. So when you are struggling in life, it can be really helpful to take yourself out of your everyday context so that you're in a separate safe space to then explore things freely and and have a different perspective on, on things and work through issues, et cetera, et cetera. When you're looking at well-being, your well-being is not a sort of a subject or a thing that you can build. Rather, it's a, an experience of, of living well within a context. It's about the connection that you have with that context and how, how you connect to it and how it connects to you and supports your key needs. So therefore, well-being is something that we can only support within a context. We can't, can't take a group of people out of their context, make them well, put them back into their context, and then expect them to be well. It just doesn't work. Um, so that is also hugely problematic. And plus, you, you would only generally go to seek therapy if you chose to go. Um, we don't force therapy on people. Whereas we're telling kids, this is it. This is your well-being class. And, and there's no option. And we're going to make you happier whether you like it or not. So that's also really problematic. And then the final thing I have to mention is motivation. I feel that positive education has um, developed without any understanding of motivation. And so it's, it's rather, it's just sort of like rolled along, picking up on, on very sort of widely used ways that schools sort of have taken on board over time to try and sort of like cheer students on to behave in certain ways, you know, basically using extrinsic reinforcers. Um, whereas the reality is that if, if we want to sort of support motivation, we want to better understand motivation and support autonomous motivation in young people. And that's a wholly different thing. So it, it sort of, it makes me horrified every time I go into a school and I see a kindness wall or a kindness tree or a, what went well wall or whatever and and there are kids names with their thing that they did stuck on the wall and and I just think that's that's a, that's a really bad state of affairs because that's not teaching anybody about kindness that's teaching people how to get a reward that's and that's a whole different thing um... motivation is an issue too there are many other I think smaller differences and but, you know, I should say that there is also overlap between the two. We all have the same aims, you know. I, 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 I love some of the people in the positive education space and, and know that they're deeply committed to, to the same overall aims as me, and that, that is better mental health in young people and, indeed, in educators. Um, I, I just don't really support the journey that they're on to get there. As... Um... Lewis, did you want to say? I did. There's an incredible amount of exit points from what you just said there. And there's so much I'm sure that we'll start to sort of loop back to including this idea of motivation and ex extrinsic rewards. But maybe I'd just like to take a moment to try and sort of um, maybe just summarise some of the things you've said there, just to check for our understanding and, and to clear a few things up. I really like the idea of your your sort of definition of well-being, although you didn't formally introduce it as that, you talked about living well in your context and actually that being really, really important. And it, it made me start to think of this idea, and I don't know, Alan, if, if you, um, you recognise this as well. Oftentimes with a positive education approach, and I, I work in a positive education school that, that's very much, um, very, very supportive of the approaches of positive education. I've worked in schools before that have used that as well. And it is very much this sort of liberal idea of you are your own individual, your well-being is your responsibility, you are accountable for that. And, and what we'll try and do as much as possible is give you the tools to support, to sort of support you on that journey. And it sounds like what you're saying here is actually that's that's part of it, but it's missing the point of, of what a school is. And a school is actually to try and create a context. And if I've listened to you correctly, that really values belonging and connection if somebody doesn't belong and connect with the people around them well actually you can give them every well-being tool that they could possibly try and nothing will replicate that gap in their life that the belonging and the connection would would take up um, yes that's absolutely right in part i mean yeah a school is a social system and we're all yeah. part of you know within a school you're part of that system mm. um and and so that system has to work as a whole and that system has to work to support the needs of the members of that system. And um, here I'm, I'm, I'm 
relating back to self-determination theory, which is hugely well-researched across so many different cultures and demographics. And we found time and time again that people around the world, human beings, social beings, have three key needs. They have a need for autonomy, and we can sort of translate that into schools to think about things like agency, student voice, ownerships, and sense of control, some choice. Um, they have a need for relatedness. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have to be in a, surrounded by people all the time, but it means that you need to have a sense that you have key relationships in your life that feel authentic and um, allow you to feel a sense of acceptance and belonging, as you, as you so rightly said. And we also have a need for competency. And that doesn't mean getting the school prize for math. That, that means a sense for everybody of having a, a, a sense that you are growing and you're progressing and it's about meaning and purpose in life. Um, and that, that, that third need is so um, lacking in so many young people in schools. And I feel that we're sort of making that situation worse in some ways with the positive education movement because we give people um, so much positive acclaim if we feel that they've achieved highly at the cost of so many others are feeling a lack of a sense of competency um, and even in well-being we're doing it in well-being so you know schools who think oh we mustn't just focus on outcomes and now giving things like awards for effort which at best makes somebody think oh my gosh you know what even though I tried really, really hard, they've given me the effort award, I still didn't do very well. Um, or effort has become an outcome, which, or judgeable by somebody else. And, and that is a nonsense in itself. You know, for one child, just turning up at school at all might take in a massive amount of effort. Uh, another might, you know, cruise fairly easily to, to achieving good things in, in their learning who made the most effort, who's to say? So we're focusing so much on surface, on behaviors with what we're doing. Whereas the way we interact and connect and understand with the world has to stem from our values and our intention and our attitude. It's, it's not just a behaviorally driven thing. And, and do our values and our attitude and the things that we're projecting as members of staff set the tone for that it, it sounds a lot like what you're talking about is actually the obvious stuff the kindness walls the gratitude trees they miss the point and actually you need to to live this every single yes. day and the children yes. need to see it right absolutely absolutely so we know that in both primary and secondary school settings the relationship that young people have with their teachers is of paramount importance and um for not just in it within itself, but in um, in indicating to everyone else in the context how likable young people are. So, for example, we know that certainly in primary school settings, that if a teacher favours a child or obviously really likes and clicks with the child, and you know we're all going to like some people more than others, um, but if that's sort of evident, then that child will be more popular within the class as a whole. So. But there are so many ways we know that those relationships are important. We know that when kids are learning to read, um, the relationship they have with their teacher is more important than any other factor. So it's more important than how many books they're trying to read or whether their parents sent them to a smart start before school. Or, you know, this is obviously taking away the fact that there's anything significant going on that's preventing someone from learning to read, um, like a learning difficulty. But all other things being equal, that relationship is so important. And so within that relationship, that you're setting up a sense of the reality of the context. And, and so, so teacher well-being and teacher social-emotional competency, which go hand in hand, are of absolute paramount importance for supporting contextual well-being, the well-being of the context as a whole. Um, it's, so yes, we, we hear a lot recently about teacher overwhelm and stress and, and, um, and, and from that alone, there's a need to better support educators' wellbeing. But more than that, it's, if, if as an educator, you're stressed and you're overwhelmed or you don't have, you know, you're, 
you're for whatever reason you're lacking in social emotional competency, then not only is it going to be really hard for you to form meaningful, valuable relationships with young people with and your colleagues, of course, but you're also it's going to be really hard for you to then um, create a reality that of of the that has the values in action that you want to see. And we know that, you know, I know that if I'm overwhelmed and tired and grumpy, it's hard for me to get along with my own children, never mind anybody else's, you know. So it's understandable. It's not, this is not to blame anyone, but rather to just that it cannot be stated enough how important it is that teachers walk into the classroom, at least with an understanding of how to leave their stress at the door and how to sort of, how to operate in an authentically, socially, emotionally competent way. Um, I think what, what I'm really getting from, from this conversation so far, Helen, is that you, sometimes when we, we, we're shining so much light on one area, we, we forget everything else that's going on. And to use the example you just talked about there, if your relationships with children are poor, it's probably likely that that's more of a problem with you as the professional and the teacher than the child, of course. And then if your relationships are, are quite poor with those children around you, actually, it comes back then to the autonomy, which is one of their needs, is then going to be taken away because there isn't the level of trust between those children. So the, the level of student voice that you're asking from them is either going to be contrived in some way because you feel you need to do it, but you don't trust the children, and vice versa. The honesty you get from them is going to be affected too. That will then have a direct effect on, if, if I'm listening to you correctly, their competency. Their reading skill is a reflection upon their relationship with the teacher was that sort of example that you gave. So are we bringing this sort of all the way back to actually within your staff and your community, this needs to be something that you get right first and and then that can have a huge effect on the children? Um, It's something that is really important, absolutely, for all the reasons that you stay. But I do think it's also really important to know that you're... If you're not, if you're finding it hard to get along with it with with a student, it's not all on you, and it's not as, as an educator. There are many reasons that students struggle, but it's about thinking. But that relationship is a really core cool part of that yeah. puzzle. So it's your really important part of the context. But there are many other elements of context that have a huge influence on how those children are faring in class as well the policies and the practices of the school you know so you could have you could for example you could be the um you could be a really sort of like a a great educator who has a great relationship with this all the students in your class and they're about to sort of go off to the debating competition and you say to them quite rightly you know what how you do doesn't really matter it's great that you're having a go and just give it your best and yes this is going to feel quite nerve-wracking for some of you but just sort of um but rise to the challenge you're going to feel good about you know you say all the right things and you really mean them and you're being very authentic but then if the school then I don't know gives an award to the person that wins the debating competition and the prize and then they get the photo in the newsletter and then their awards put in the cabinet in the reception you know in the in the it, it, and on it goes then there's the the policy and practice of the school part of the con which is part of the context has just overridden everything that you've said with the best of intentions so it's not just your relationship it's also about social norms so you could try and build a trusting honest relationship with your students but if you then lock them all out of the class while they go to break and tell them don't you know don't forget to lock your lockers and or you know in some schools they lock the toilets um, because they don't trust the students um, then again, that what's the norm, it's not necessarily written down policy and practice, but the normative behavior is overriding the relationship you're trying to build. And then you've got the physical space as well, which is also a massively important part of the context. So you've got to think, what do the messages say on the walls? What I went into a school uh, two weeks ago in, in Melbourne and um, walked into their, um, you know, their front reception and they had um, a big banner that talked about, um, I said something, I can't remember the exact quote, but something very poetic about how it was not being the best, but, it, but finding your best self that counted. You know, a lovely thing to walk in and see in a reception, but it was positioned next to the trophy cabinet, which has <laughs> a, a, a book in it 
of kids that had been high achievers and, and acclaimed. And I pointed this out to the staff and they said, oh, well, now you say it, it seems sort of obvious. But it becomes such an, it obviously sat like that for many years and no one really sort of thought about it. But that has an impact. And in some ways that, that environmental impact is all the more powerful because it's, it, it becomes, um, we've become sort of complacent about it and we don't notice it, but it's still having, it's still sending us messages. Um, so there are, there are many aspects of context that are important and we have to try and align them all to create an equitable reality. And, and, um, and I, think, I think the problem is with all of this though, is this is not a sort of a, a five-step plan that's going, that you can do in a week. You know, I'm not, I can't give you a set of 24 colored cards and tell you off you go, it's all going to be great. This is like, this is something that is, is an ongoing journey that you have to work on. It's systemic, it's how you work as a culture. But um, sometimes we can confuse speed for progress. And I think maybe we might have been doing that in the last couple of years. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I, can I just touch upon? Can I touch upon something we talk about a lot, Lewis? And that's yeah. Go on. I think you're going to say exactly the same thing. Though. <laughs> you have these posters on there, and live it, not laminate, is is a lot of the what we guests have talked about previously. And for us, it's what goes on away from the lights. What's happening when no one is watching? That's the culture of a school. It's easy to do when you, your leadership's around and when teachers are around what the students are behaving. What are they doing at lunch when that teacher's back's turned? What are they doing outside of school? Are they actually living those values? It's super interesting. That's the proper culture, isn't it? Is how they're behaving yes. away from the problem. Yes, yes. And and absolutely. And there is and there you're sort of really highlighting there's a big difference between policy, practice, what you write on the website to yeah. um, the social norms and the and the normative reality. Of, of a school culture, absolutely, there is. Yeah, and, the, and there's, there's, this is non-linear, isn't it? There, there are so many layers, and, and there's such an intricate structure to this. Like Alan said, it, it can't just be that. Well, we teach them this, and then we go out onto the playground, and we expect to see X, Y, and Z. Those subliminal messages are massive, and it makes me think of the complete contradictions that we constantly give in school sport. You know, the, the contradictions of you know. Um, the result doesn't matter, which, to be fair, is still quite a new idea in many, many schools. But this idea of, well, we're going to play and we're going to progress and the result doesn't matter. And you see that in practice and you see that done really well. And then the coach and the team where you've seen it done really well, they get to a semi-final. What happens in the semi-final? Well, suddenly the result does matter. So what's <laughs> going to happen is you, you and you aren't going to play because you're not as good as the other children. So everything that you've said up to that point is completely destroyed because of the decisions and the actions that you've taken, which has completely contradicted what's just happened in that game. And this is just one example that's sport-related. It really resonates with me, Helen, how many of those you actually see in a school, how many of those where you give children the chance to share their opinion and then berate them for being too honest or saying things that you perceive as rude or unkind. Oh, it's, it's so true. There are so many examples. And, you know, sport is a good one to talk about, actually, because I think people have got so confused about sport and competition. Oh, yeah. But, but um, and let's do that. But just to, to say, yes, there are so many examples, like how many... How many schools say have posters up on the wall saying, you know, we value mistakes and mistakes are the next step to success? And, you know, there's lots of like, you know, well written, nice quotes, aren't there? And then student turns out having forgot their library book or they, you know, forgot their hat again or they didn't forgot their homework again. And, and what happens? You know, it's sort of like we, we don't give them very easily. We tend to forgive mistakes in little people, but the older they get, the older kids get, the less we um, accept mistakes. So, uh, which is, and you know, of course, there's a difference between being tolerant of mistakes and wanting there never to be any consequences. You know, so, if you, if you, uh, I don't know, easy example, if you if you forget your hat and every day for for a week, and there's no spare hat to wear, and you have to miss playtime in the sun or whatever which would be a thing in Australia um then maybe that's a natural consequence you know but but to berate someone or be resentful about that or judge them for that that that's never a good thing 
but yeah, but back to the going back to the sport, I feel like it's a world gone mad at the moment, really, in in that the way to sort of deal with competition and and outcomes in sport is not to pretend they don't exist and then <laughs> sort of like work towards them anyway. It's just like, or, or you know, the worst things I think we see is where people, everybody gets a prize. You know, it's like, I won, I won, I came eighth. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it, uh, it's, um, it's nonsensical. It's putting more emphasis on the outcome than we've ever had before. Yeah. If you have a race and you have one person win and you accept that they won and you give them a round of applause because of, 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 you know, the whole aim of the race was to have a winner then and you accept that that's what we're trying to do. So well done, the person that won, but now we're going to move on. It puts far less emphasis on outcomes and saying, oh, my gosh, we must give everybody a prize. You know, it's just that's the nonsense. And also it's not the reality because people still know who actually won. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to sport and competition, I feel that actually playing sport, competitive sport, can be fantastic for people's well-being. It can teach young people so much, especially team sport, I think. You know, it can teach you how to get along with others, how to win, how to lose, how to play fair, how to be disciplined. You know, my, my uh, youngest daughter has to get up at 5.45 to go to hockey training, dark at that time at the moment and that's teaching her something because she's not going to miss it you know and um there's so many good things about sport and and there's good things about learning to win and to lose in competition the problems start to arise with competition when we start to say that's the only thing that matters or that that matters more than playing fairly or being a good sport um when we um, say it matters so much, that's where we're going to put all the emphasis. So we sort of like overstate the win, you know, so we don't just applaud the winner. We then put their photo in the school reception and, and somehow make them extra special, you know. So it's sort of like rather than saying, fantastic, you, you deservedly won whatever it is you just won, the football match or whatever, but... Um, but that doesn't necessarily make you a better person than anybody else. And, and so I think, I think that and, and there, are, there is a massive difference between healthy competition and forced unhealthy competition, which is about winning at all costs, really. Um, and parents can be the worst culprits, can't they, with this, really? No way. No way. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to just pick up on some points you've talked about before, Helen, and... We've had mass debates about this before in PE departments over the last 20 years. Sports days, they're either the worst day ever for people or the best day ever for people. Yeah. Should be a choice. You've just talked about forced. How can we make it healthy without drawing attention to people who don't really like it? Should they even have to take part? And it links into things like house competitions in school. There's no yeah. real equity to that. The, the best... The best students are getting all the rewards again. And how do you fit in those that don't like competition, but they want to feel a sense of belonging? Because that's what it's about, yeah. isn't it, really? Absolutely. Well, I think it's sort of in part answering your own questions as you go. But, but it's, um, yeah, I think here we're talking about risk, aren't we? And, yeah. and there's um, all learning involves a certain level of risk because it involves pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. Um, so in a, in a way, going to school and learning anything new in any subject involves taking a certain level of risk to push yourself to, to do something, to be something new at some level. Um, and we know that, therefore, that learning to take appropriate risk, to take risk is a, is a really important thing. Um, we want to encourage all young people, and we want to encourage ourselves, each other, to constantly move out of our comfort zone and take risks. But we don't want to push people to take a risk that uh, is such a big risk for them that they no longer feel safe and they are left with a feeling of embarrassment or shame or failure rather than a feeling of rising to the challenge and then being successful. So it's finding that sort of between being completely comfortable and being 
feeling so unsafe or so out of your comfort zone that the risk you take is not going to lead to an enhanced feeling of capability and success and resilience when you need it, but rather is going to lead to you feeling quite traumatized. And so when it comes to the sports day, there are going to be a lot of a lot of kids who, um, yeah, as you say, he'll say it's the best day of the year. There'll be other kids who are a bit reluctant, but have cheered on and given enough encouragement. They will face their fear, do whatever, uh, the race and a, or a team game or whatever it might be, and they will feel a huge sense of achievement because they faced their fear, they came through, right. And those people, that, that's such a good learning. And those, uh, but then there's other kids where the risk is too high for them and they're going to be, they're not going to finish the race feeling a sense of achievement. They're going to feel humiliated or embarrassed or, or, um, or a failure in some way. And for, so if they're not ready to take that step. And so I don't think we should ever force anyone to do anything, to take any risk, but rather we can only encourage people out of their comfort zone to the degree they're ready to go. So as you say, something like sports day is often seen as a real sort of community event for a school. And so there's a, there's a lot of pressure to have everybody involved. Yes. And if we could support those who weren't ready to put themselves on public show in a, um, doing things that maybe they don't feel very competent in doing, um, to be involved in other ways, like whether it's sort of, I don't know, cheering on their faction or house with pom-poms or handing out refreshments or timing people or whatever it might be, then I think you're much more likely to actually have everybody show up because the reality is kids that get really feel really traumatized and upset by sports days often will end up being sick on sports days, won't they? Because if you see trauma at school, imagine what's going on at home on the morning that sports day arrives or even the week before in the buildup, knowing you've got to do something that you feel you so can't do. Um, so we're not actually by forcing it, trying to force it on people. We're not ending up with more people present. We're actually ending up with people completely disengaged and feeling completely on the outside. So to create belonging, we have to respect that people are different and, and have different perceptions of risk and safety. You're fully right. You're fully right. And I, I also look at the context there of, I've had some instances over the last few weeks where, People, small children, uh, primary school children have not wanted to come swimming because they were genuinely scared. So this is learning to swim. So it's dealing with that individual context. And we luckily had some, some, I worked with some wonderful colleagues who then speak to the parents and it's been passed down from parents, that fear of swimming because the parent can't swim. And then we start to work with the community say, well, bring your child along on a Saturday morning and you can learn with your son or daughter and it breaks down those barriers. But if you can see it from a school perspective, that takes two, three, four, five times as long and it doesn't fit nicely into a timetable, does it? It means really putting yourself out there and really catering for individual needs. And that's the balance, isn't it? How do you cater for the complete difference and spectrum of individual needs whilst also trying to be part of a structured timetable in school. That's the Absolutely. balance, that's the key, isn't uh, it? It is, it is. And in, in some ways, I think you're, you know, you're quite rightly saying you can never sort of do enough to meet in the individual differences within a, a, a mass system of a school. But at least if we start with the right ideals and an understanding that... Um, people's perception of risk and safety varies a lot and our aim is to support people to be self-determined and able to sort of keep on learning and pushing themselves out of their comfort zone if we start with that sort of as an ideal at least least within the limits of what we can do what we are doing is supportive not pushing against that so even if you haven't got maybe an opportunity and you know to get parents and kids learning to swim together on a Saturday morning, which is a lovely idea if you can do it. At the very least, you could say to kids that are anxious that they um, can either be in the shallow end playing on a noodle or they can, you know, it's sort of like you, there's 
have more variety of, of options that take people more slowly to up, up their sort of ladder of risk and safety. Mm. So in that, going back to your sports day, you might find a lot of kids that feel that the idea of a race is totally beyond them are still willing to, to be pushed to have a go at a team game. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, a fun game that where they feel like it's not just the focus is not on one them. Um, so I, I think that there are small shifts that we can do and changes we can do. And even if, you know, if you have limited resources and the best you can do is to say to someone, you can sit this out, that's better. That's better than forcing someone to feel totally traumatised. It's, fine. it's finding it that challenge level, isn't it? The appropriate challenge level where they can take the learning risk and know that they're safe, whether they they meet the challenge or not. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I want to I want to yeah. have a go at putting this on a positive schools lens and a positive education lens, and this is quite a raw example. Um, so, if we were looking at this from a solely positive education lens, we'd be saying to a child ahead of this task that they need to do or this event that they need to go to you know how are you dealing with your emotions um yes you may fail how will you deal with that failure how are you preparing yourself for this how are you dealing with the emotions that you have around this how are you preparing physically for it have you the tools to be able to understand the anxiety that you're feeling and why you're feeling it whereas from a positive schools point of view we'd actually be saying, well, what is it that we're asking them to do? What is it that we're asking them to wear? What is it that we're asking them to perform in front of other people? Is the challenge level appropriate for them? And do they have a choice and an agency in what they're doing? Yeah, um, yeah I, th- I, th- I think that works quite well. And from a sort of positive school's point of view, you're saying, well, is this sort of an equitable situation where we're supporting everybody? Yeah. Um, I think that, no, I, I, I went to a conference several years ago now that was all um, phys ed teachers. Okay. And I... Nightmare. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I was the only one that wasn't wearing sneakers, I, I think. But anyway, but yes, it was, it was nice. There was a lot of nice energy there. But I, I did this sort of imaginary long line in this workshop room. And I, I, I said, I, now imagine one end of the line is um, for you go and stand at that end of the line if you think that playing sport, competitive sport, is the absolute best thing in the entire world and, you know, something that you choose to do beyond anything else. You know, you love it. And go and stand at the other end of the line, which was sort of 30 metres away, if you would rather be poked in the eye with a sharp stick <laughs> than play in a, in, a, in a competitive game of sport. And... Everybody but one person went to the far end of the love sport end, you know. And I think the one person that didn't wasn't actually a, a sports teacher or had some sort of like they were an outlier in some way, so they hardly can. And I and I thought, and I think that that sort of really signals the fact that I think a, a, a lot of people find it hard to understand. That the, not everybody is in their mindset and seeing things in the same way as them, that there are different perspectives and different ways of seeing the same context and the same situation. And so I think with all the will in, the best will in the world, a lot of those phys ed teachers, they just couldn't understand that people did, wouldn't love it if they were pushed into it. You know, it's sort of like if we just like drag them to the start line and insist they run, they'll see how great it is. Yeah. <laughs> Could it- could, could we explore that a bit more, Helen, now in terms of motivation and rewards? And I know we want, we said it right back at the start, and I did want to come round to it. And I'll give you a bit of context here. Um, the two campuses which I work at the moment, and I'm, I'm sure they won't mind me using them as an example. We have one campus that's been very much uh, about house points, extrinsic rewards, uh, and, and it's worked in terms of creating a big explosion in house competitions. Children get their, their points for doing variety of different activities, doing really well, putting effort in whatever the teacher decides. Campus where, where I'm working is, is brand new. And we looked at current research and we said, well, we're not going to offer any extrinsic rewards. Now, I've worked in a variety of schools that have done both models. Now, what does the research say about this, Helen? What 
do we offer out rewards like confetti, like a token economy, or do we give no rewards and just rely on good old-fashioned praise? There's, there's so many arguments here that I have and debates about what is actually best for the children. So can you, can you shed some light on what is actually best from a well-being perspective? Sure. Um, well, yes, I will. I will just say, though, that good old-fashioned praise is a reward in itself. But, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think you have to take a step back and you have to think, what is it that I'm trying to achieve? What are my aims? And, um, and certainly, if you offer rewards, prizes, awards to um, people, then you can get them to do things that you would like them to do. So you can garner compliance. Um, and certainly we use rewards to train animals. You know, I have a cavoodle and Barney and he can do lots of tricks and he's very good at them. And I have, he's totally reward trained. Um, but I want him to be obedient and um, to live with me forever and do the things I ask him to do. Um, the same is not true of my children. I have three adolescent daughters and I hope they all leave home, you know, <laughs> soon, eventually. And, um, and, and when they do, I hope, or, you know, the older two go out a lot on their own or independently with friends. And I hope that they make good choices when I'm not around. And that it's not about their obedience. It's not about trying to garner compliance. It's about trying to support and being self-determined, making good decisions when I'm not there because they feel that's the best decision to make. And it's also about if they make poor decisions, in my mind, it's about feeling that our relationship is strong enough that they can come and say, gosh, I made a really poor choice here. Can, we, can I have some help? Um, so if you sort of translate that to schools, I feel in schools we've got we are sort of that use a lot of rewards and awards. They might be garnering a lot of compliance, at least in the short term, from the kids in the schools, getting them to behave in certain ways when they're, as you said before, when they're being watched. But you're not necessarily supporting their self determination in any way, because we know that when you are doing something because somebody has offered you. A, a reward or an award or an external judgment of some sort, then your attention tends to be on the thing that you're going to gain um, from doing whatever it is. So um, if, if my daughter thought, or if I get all my homework done in the week, I'm going to get um, I don't know, $50 on Friday, um, then she might do all her homework in the week because she wants her $50, but she's learned nothing about the intrinsic benefits of, of doing the work or, or how it can meet, not necessarily even be extrinsically rewarding in itself, because it might be hard work doing homework, but how it can lead to her achieving her own self-set goals, like being better in her subjects or getting the grades she needs to go to, I don't know, do whatever she wants to do at university. So by by having a sort of a system that's set up with rewards and awards, we might be getting some sort of behavioral compliance, but at the expense of young people not learning to be self-determined. They're not learning to work towards their own set goals. They're not learning about the intrinsic benefits of what they do. And we're also damaging the relationships we have with them. So if I said to my kids again, you know, I, and I should just say, I'm not a massive fan of homework, but I'm using it as an example here. But um, if, you, if I gave you $50 for doing all your homework in the week, then I've just said, I'm sort of the boss of you and I can judge you and I can sort of like pay you and to behave in a certain way. And although she might, you know, jump at the chance of getting the money, at some level, that's damaged our relationship just a little bit because it sort of made, created a bit of an imbalance a controlling imbalance there. It's also taken away her voice a bit. She's not now in control of her homework. I'm a bit more in control of it. And her sense of competency, has, if she is going to be challenged as well, because if, say, she doesn't get it all done, she's not, but she gets, say, she gets 75% of it done. If there was no reward on offer, she might feel like, well, that's good enough. I've done pretty well this week. But because she didn't get the $50, she might well feel like I didn't do it. I'm not successful. So 
there is, I hope that that sort of translates. It's a big subject. So I'm trying to use a sort of a small yeah. example <clears throat> to, offer, to cover many points there. So you find that kids in schools where there's loads of rewards and awards on offer are less able to set their own goals to work towards and less able to see the intrinsic benefits in the choices they make. Yeah. Um, there's less of, there's more power and balance with their relationships. They have less the sense of their own voice. And for all those who don't get the award or the reward or the prize, their competency has just been really challenged as well. Yeah. So it's a sort of, um, so it, it, looking at the school with no rewards or awards, it's sort of, it's rather, I think the focus is on there's no extrinsic rewards or awards yeah. rather than awards or rewards per se, because it still can be rewarding to, to do something and have a sense of accomplishment or rewarding to do something so that you get something that you want. So that, you know, so you still, there's still benefits and rewards and positive feedback that, uh, that comes from, from working towards things, but it's not a sort of a compliance driven desire to please somebody else or to get someone else's judgment. And it's that preconception of that word rewards, isn't it? Of what do rewards mean? We've gone away from reward being, you know, well done and appraised, like you mentioned at the start of, of those comments and into this idea that actually a reward now has to be extrinsic. And I, I have a, I have a question that, that might start to, to put a little bit of this into context. We know that as children start to grow, their idea of relationships, they are very transactional, aren't they? They, You know, it is very much if you behave, you'll get good things. If you don't behave, you'll go and sit on the naughty step. And as children get older and they become a little bit, um, a little bit more aware of the world and and their cognitive development occurs, we, we get to that stage where they understand that not all relationships are transactional, nor should they be transactional. Where's that sweet spot, Helen? Where do we start moving away from um, more of this sort of extrinsic reward theory and an idea? And when do we start moving to this idealistic sort of socialist um, element of a school being somewhere where everybody supports one another and there isn't a need for for uh, for those rewards? But, in I, I think we start, we start from birth, you know. I don't think there's ever a time to have extrinsic rewards or consequences that aren't in line with what you're doing. You know, so if you're... If your small child keeps throwing their, I don't know, mashed pumpkin across the, the room or, or whatever, and you need to take it away, then that's a natural consequence, isn't it? But to go and sit on the naughty step is nothing to do with what just happened. Yeah. So it doesn't make any sense. That's just about you trying to teach them obedience. It's like me trying to train my dog, you know. Um, I, I, so I feel that it's all about thinking, you know, we need to learn that there are consequences to our actions, good and bad. You know, if I, kids learn to share toys, for so thinking about really little kids, kids generally learn to share kids with uh, toys with other kids, not because they develop some great sense of altruism, but because they learn that that means those kids will share toys back with them. You know, so we learn the benefits when play and, and, but there's sort of a, that's a natural consequence, a natural benefit that comes. So, yeah, so it's really important as we grow to learn that everything we do has um, consequences, but that's very different to trying to control someone's behaviour. Um, now, you say good old-fashioned praise, but, you know, be aware that if you say good job or well done, that is a reward of sorts. Yeah. So I, I feel that we could do much better with our kids especially younger kids by just sort of showing that we see what they do and that um because kids want to be seen more than praised you know mm-hmm. so if if your if your little child does a, a picture of a of a house you know or you know a nice blue house and um, rather and brings it to you and and you say that's fantastic darling then that then you've just given your judgment on what they've done but you haven't you don't even need to have seen the picture to make to, so you haven't necessarily even seen them or you could keep I don't know doing the dishes while you said that but if you turn around and you go oh I see you chose blue for your house without judging on whether it's good or bad or how you feel about it then you've actually said volumes more you said to that child I've seen what you've done I've noticed it and you've also supported that child in seeing what they've done as well yeah. um, Oh, so yeah, 
we, hopefully we, that, that sort of gives an example. No, it does. It is a really good example because it's one that you're often in, isn't it? When a child asks you about their work, whether it's your own child or a child at school, and just that idea of thanking them and saying, oh, I really like the colours, is a very, very yes. different way of receiving that information than, than what would essentially be a lie. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, I mean, if, you, if your child does something and, and someone does something and it's great and it's a natural reaction to go, wow, I love it, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with celebrating and sharing how you feel about something. But it's not about our judgment. It's not about that. It's about supporting somebody to be a self-determined person. I am. Um, and and uh, yeah. We're good. We've got. I know we're conscious of time, Helen, and uh, I want to just wind it down a touch now. It's funny. I've just got a message on here from my my principal saying she knew I was interviewing you this morning, <laughs> <laughs> and she said. Can you please ask Helen what her views are on streaming? This is interesting because I know your views on this and I've been desperate to ask you about <laughs> it and, and how it links with well-being and motivation and competency. So please, just to finish off, give us your views, mixed ability, setting, because this is the cause of debates worldwide. Let's put a nail on this. Absolutely. I'm happy to do that. Can... Um, 10- can I just, can we pause for, for one minute and then I can answer that question? Is that all right? Yeah, yeah no problem. Okay, we're back from our short pause. Um, Helen's put some uh, juice into a laptop and put the charger in. So Helen, we're left on the cliffhanger of um, streaming, mixed <laughs> ability versus um, ability grouping. What are your thoughts? Okay, so in terms of um, thinking about improving learning outcomes, there's, there's mixed uh, research. Um, so um, I, that I, I can't comment on in a definitive way. Um, and I think, I think probably the, the differences in research findings are not with comparing to sort of teachers' ability to do differentiated learning and, and how confident they feel on, on teaching classrooms with kids of very different abilities and also is a, is a little bit dependent on the subject as well. Um, but when it comes to um, elements of, of well-being and, and meeting the needs of young people, then we do find that streaming is a, not a good idea because it's not, generally speaking, a very equitable idea. So we tend to find that kids in um, the lower groups uh, fare the worst, as one might expect in that overall that if they're put into a lower group they tend it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in that they sort of feel like oh well I'm obviously no good at this subject then competency then is diminished um, they often feel that they have less creativity less choice and control because often kids in the higher streams get the sort of extra learning and the extra more creative stuff to do so autonomy is compromised and often the best teachers go to the best students as well. And um, often relationships can be compromised as well, or at least within the school, those kids can feel their status is lowered. Um, and all of that sort of like lessening of, of meeting young people's needs means that they tend to be less engaged in their learning, less motivated. And so they do less, <laughs> they're learning less, and therefore they stay in the lower stream. So, um, so when it comes to supporting learning engagement, motivation and well-being, I feel streaming is very inequitable. It can do wonders if you're, if you're sort of put in a higher stream um, in that you told you've got high status within the school, you've got opportunity to be creative, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But even then, we do find that kids can struggle in higher streams because there's still obviously variation in ability in, a, in one stream. And kids who are, who are very academic are often also quite perfectionist, quite anxious, quite sensitive kids. And so they can feel enormous pressure to keep performing really well. Um, so, so I feel that having said all of that, my personal opinion is that there is a place for, for maybe some streaming in, in high school. Um, and especially when uh, you're looking at subjects where there's really wild 
you know, very significant differences between kids. Kids can maybe feel, coming back to risk and safety, can be feel um, safer to be with other kids who are um, learning at a more similar level to them. Um, and it, I don't know that that's such a bad thing, but I feel that lower down in the early years of high school and certainly in primary school, there is no place for streaming because it's way too early to sort of limit a, a, a child in terms of their beliefs about any particular learning or topic. And there is so much research to support how mixed classes can actually be beneficial for everyone. You know, especially kids, kids who are doing well supporting kids that might be struggling with a topic and kids learn at different rates. And so I just feel that, that um, you know, with things like reading groups as well, that where you get see those in really young kids, and that's really problematic because you're you're shutting down motivation to reading in, in kids who are put in lower groups at such a young age. And we also know that it's again, it's about engagement, it's about motivation and engagement. And if you can sort of stay engaged and interested in the topic, even if it's not something that you're particularly strong at, then um, then you you can do great things. Whereas you can sort of have a natural affinity for something, but if you lose motivation and you become disengaged, then you can go nowhere, you know? And, and we certainly see that, that. How many, like, teenagers do we see? And we thought, oh, gosh, they could have been, you know, they have such a natural affinity for languages or they were musical, they could have been great at sport or whatever, but they've lost motivation or engagement and everything comes to a standstill. And in contrast, when we see someone who maybe wasn't you know a natural athlete or they they weren't the best at math but they just had for whatever reason they had some goal that they really wanted to achieve or they persevered or they're engaged or they had the right sort of like uh, managed to find the right sort of attitude to connect well with that subject the right mindset one of the better word um, and they ended up achieving such success so um so I feel that, that we may be, when we, if you are thinking about streaming, we do have streaming in a school, but then you need to consider the pros and cons of that across a broader spectrum of, of things. It's not just about their ability to do that subject. We've also got to consider their motivation, their engagement, their self-belief, where they're headed, how old they are, and, and be aware that, that teachers perceptions of kids potential is is made on the basis of the context they see those kids in so even when teachers say oh you know we, we assess kids regularly and they can move streams but, but teachers tend to see a, a kid's ability according to the stream they're already in more than other factors so to just sort of I'm not saying yes or no but I'm saying that I certainly feel that that we we could consider far more factors than we do and then the lack of motivation part that you spoke about there screamed at me this idea of just burning out the um value of things like extrinsic rewards when they're young throwing around house points and reward points and then by the time they get to you know year eight year nine they're a bit like well these don't really mean anything to me and then the motivation yeah. drops off because it's been built around that and, I'm well, conscious. that's the problem. Yes, that is a problem with, I mean, sometimes you might really just want compliance. Yeah. And, and I don't think that if you are, if you're an educator who, who, who gets compliance and, and sort of that, a certain behavioural control in the classroom by using rewards and awards or token economies or whatever it might be, I wouldn't say just stop. I would say just start by thinking about what needs are not being met in this classroom that I need to try and sort of um, put carrots on sticks to get kids to behave in a certain way and, and work to try and meet those needs more fully so that the, the idea of the rewards becomes less compelling. Yeah, and the, the sort of star of the day one probably gets thrown into the same pot as well that ends up being everybody in the class at some stage across the year because otherwise uh, a child well, feels yeah, left I mean, Kids are not stupid, are they? Kids understand the, re- the difference between the reality and the lesson more than the adults do, I think. Whenever I get the, the, you know, if I, when I work with a school and I get a chance to talk with the students, that's always the most joyous time for me because they just so get it. They so get it and they, they're so on the ball. And they will say, you know, they'll say, well, the pos lesson 
it's time out or it's, or it's ridiculous if they don't see it reflecting the reality of their day-to-day life they will get that immediately or they'll say you know or the um i don't know the, the pink slip we get for misbehaving or the star we get for doing something they see what that's really about and they they know that when they're told well done in front of the class that's about getting the whole class to behave it's not about them um, they see it. They really do. So I, I'd say that maybe the best starting point, and, and a good point for us to finish, but the best starting point for many schools is to sit down with your students and talk to them about this stuff and, and get an understanding of how they view it and how they see their reality and how they feel they need to be met. Which brings us right back to one of those three needs you talked about earlier of autonomy. We, um, yeah. we, 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 we could talk for so much longer, Helen. I know for this time, that is impossible, but I, we, we'd love to welcome you back on uh, sometime in the future to, to continue this conversation. And before you go, a quick question for you just to end on. If, if you were to hire a billboard at the side of a busy freeway, what, what would you write on that billboard as a, as a message to the world from Helen Street? Oh, <laughs> gosh. Um, quick question. Um, what would I write? Um, everything changes. Everything changes. And we'll leave it on that. Um, Helen, we'd love to have you back on in the future. Um, I'd love that too. It's been very nice. Thank you for both of you again for the opportunity and nice to meet you both. And, and very much enjoy the conversation. Fantastic. And, and I know that now, um, because borders are opening up and, and travel's allowed, that you, you're able to travel a little bit more um, and stop the sort of Zoom virtual stuff. So would you like to share with our, our listeners and um, where they can read more about you and the work that you do with Positive Schools? Um, well, we have um, positiveschools.com as our, as our main website hub. And from that, people can go and look at conferences which are happening in person this year and or they can find out more about me and the work I do yeah so nice to be in person and yeah it is it's I've started working with schools again across Australia and it's so nice so nice I've never liked traveling so much as I do right <laughs> and it's so nice to be in rooms with real people but having said that you know the it, I'm so glad to have become a zoom expert in the last two years and two years ago I didn't I couldn't use Zoom at all. I didn't know how to press play, you know. So thank goodness for technology and all it has to offer. It's, it's been an amazing support. And it'll be interesting to see, won't it, how we can sort of combine those different mediums and, and online stuff can support in-person stuff, maybe rather than the other way around. For sure. Thanks a lot for your time, Helen. Take care. All right. Thanks, Lewis. Thank you, Alex. for listening to Sensemakers brought to you by the Infinite Learners podcast and backed by Tsunami, the number one eco kit provider for schools worldwide. You can learn more about Tsunami by, by visiting tsunami-sport.com and if you want to hear more from the Infinite Learners, you can find us on your favourite podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you.